Awesome. Well, I realize in the last like 10 years or so, um, at least in my life, from my perspective, it seems like personality tests have been like become very common in like our normal language and our normal conversations. In fact, how many of you guys have taken any kind of personality tests like Myers-Briggs, Enneagram, DISC, BuzzFeed quizzes, um, those can count. Okay, sweet, so uh, most of you have, have engaged with some kind of personality assessment, which is awesome, because I, I love what these do for us. They, they give us insight into our lives, and, and as we take the test, we're like, man, these are like weird questions, I don't really get what that's about, but then it sends us our results, we're like, oh my goodness, yeah, that's me. That's all the things that I do. Like, I, I say those things. I do those things. I am a nice person, right? I am an achiever. I am a protagonist or whatever the definitions can be. And as we look into these, we gain insight into who we are and why we do the things we do, what we're motivated by. But what is even better is it shows us why everyone else acts so weird all the time. Right? It shows us why, what other, other people's motivations are and why they say the things they do and why they act the way they do. And so, you know, if you have that friend who's always serious and in your face and always challenging everything you say, you're like, oh, I get it. You're an Enneagram 8. That's just who you are. And you can't be anything else, right? Uh, and now they're all mad at me. So sorry, Enneagram 8s, please don't challenge me later on. But uh, I, love, I love these because they give us insight in how really to work together and how to live together and how to communicate better. But I, I used to have a, a roommate before I got married whose name was, um, his name was Squid. Yeah, like the, the sea creature, a squid. I don't know why he did it, but he, that's what he went by. And I remember I would always try to talk to him about these, these things. I was like, this is just so helpful for me. And he was just so against it. Like he hated, hated him. And I remember sitting with him one day and we're talking about like Myers-Briggs and Enneagram. He's like, hey, you can't put me in a box. And I was like, look, this is just a useful tool. It doesn't necessarily define everything that is squid, right? It just is helpful for understanding. He's like, yeah, that's exactly what the box wants you to think. That's what the box is there for, to, to control you. And I just remember he just was so mad at this, and he was mad at every conversation centered around this. And, and for a while, I was like, yeah, you just don't get it. You're an Enneagram nine. I don't know. I don't know. But I remember in that moment being like, this is, is useful, but at the same time, he's right in, in a sense. He's right because, because as people, we are complicated, right? We are, we are not often predictable in the sense that we have a wide range of emotions that are always warring within us. Like if you've seen Inside Out, the Pixar movie, you know, we get a glimpse into a little girl's mind and how she's like mostly joyful, but as she starts to engage with sadness and fear and disgust and anger, it starts to complicate things and her parents can't figure out why she's acting that way. But we know because we're inside of her head. We understand from her perspective what is going on. And for those of us, you know, there's several of us in this room that, you know, would describe ourselves as, as a nice person, as a kind person. But if you poke that bear hard enough, that nice person starts to become angry and, and maybe mean, right? We can react in ways that maybe are outside of our common understanding of ourself. Or that we are unpredictable a lot of times. 
right? Because we have these emotions. You mix in uh, good moods, bad moods. You mix in being tired and hungry, and you can have like a collision of emotions jump out at you at any moment, right? We've all experienced this. But when it comes to God, his character is always the same. He is very predictable and consistent in who he is. And as he reveals himself through scripture, we understand bits and pieces of who God is and what his character means. And as we read through scripture, we understand, hey, this is a holy God. And out of his holiness flows his righteousness and his justice. And at the same time, his love and his grace and his faithfulness. And as we approach the character of God and we see what he's doing throughout time, we get on board with this plan for his future for this world. We're saying, yes, I understand God's love because it is poured out through Jesus Christ. But at the same time, we look at God and we're like, look, and I know a lot of people, maybe you get this question a lot. A lot of people think, you know, I've, I've heard you talk about the fact that God is loving and he's merciful and he's gracious. But man, I've been reading the Old Testament. I've been reading parts of Revelation. And it seems like your loving, gracious God just loves to rain destruction upon nations. And so we have this tension when it comes to God. How can a good, loving, merciful God at the same time, be one who exercises judgment. And as we study and continue in our series Alpha and Omega, we'll be talking about Revelation 6 today. If you want to turn there in your Bible, if you don't have one, don't worry. It'll be on the screen for us today. But we're going to engage with what does it mean when a holy God judges his world? And how does that fit in with his loving, gracious nature? How do those two come into one? And one of the reasons we study Revelation is we are trying to understand more and more of God's character and his plan for humanity. That a holy God exercises judgment because he is just and righteous. But at the same time, his grace is available to all who turn to him. And that really is one of the main parts of Revelation. Now, in the la if you weren't here last week as we went over chapter 4 and 5, uh, we just wanted to recap uh, the last message if you weren't here. And I like to do this because, uh, you know, I don't know about you, but when you watch like Netflix or Hulu, you watch certain shows. I know my wife and I, we watch shows. Uh, we can watch like 15 episodes in one day, and then we won't touch that show for like two years. Like, we'll just like forget about it. And so when we come back to it, I love it when the shows give you that little review, like before it starts to play, uh, where it's like, previously on Lost. And it recaps everything that's going to happen to that moment, like really key events and key characters. And you're like, I get it. This episode's going to be about that guy. And that's going to happen. And it starts to clue you into what is coming now. What is going to happen in this episode? So previously on Revelation in chapter four and five, we are introduced uh, as John is describing this heavenly scene. We see God on his throne and he has this scroll. 
And as we read through Revelation, what we understand is that the scroll represents God's plan to reestablish his authority over his creation. He's going to fulfill all the promises he's made throughout scripture, and he's going to set all things right. But on this scroll are seven seals, which means we can't open it yet, right? It's sealed up, unopenable. And as the heavenly hosts are looking at the scroll, they are wondering who is worthy to open the seals, open the scroll. And behold, the lamb comes forward and he takes this scroll. We understand this to be Jesus Christ. And in Revelation 6, he's going to start breaking these seals because he alone is worthy to do that. And so Revelation 6, we're going to jump into verse 1, says this. Now I watched when the lamb opened one of the seven seals and I heard one of the four living creatures say with a voice like thunder, come. And I looked and behold, a white horse And his rider had a bow, and a crown was given to him. And he came out conquering and to conquer. When he opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, Come. And out came another horse, bright red. Its rider was permitted to take peace from the earth so that people should slay one another. And he was given a great sword. When he had opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, come, and I looked, and behold, a black horse, and its rider had a pair of scales in his hand, and I heard what seemed to be a voice in the midst of the four living creatures saying, a quart of wheat for a denarius, and three quarts of barley for a denarius, and do not harm the oil and wine. When he had opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the four living creatures say, Come. And I looked, and behold, a pale horse, and its rider's name was Death. And Hades followed him. And they were given authority over a fourth of the earth to kill with sword and with famine and with pestilence and by wild beasts of the earth. And so here, as we read that the lamb opens the seals on this scroll, we understand certain things are going to play out on this earth. And right at the beginning, these four seals are going to open up and it describes these four horsemen, commonly known as the four horsemen of the apocalypse, which is just really another word for revelation. And this is a popular image from the book of Revelation. In fact, most people would recognize it. Even if they don't know it comes from the book, they have seen or heard maybe of these four horsemen of the apocalypse. In fact, it's been used in popular culture uh, from time to time. For example, about a hundred years ago when Notre Dame was good at football, they had a defensive line. that they described as being the four horsemen of Notre Dame. And these guys were mean. Uh, they, you know, it wasn't a time where they rode, rode horses in football. That didn't exist yet, um, or still now. But they uh, were good at their jobs. And, and everyone knew if you played Notre Dame, if you saw the four horsemen line up against you, you're going to get hurt probably. It's going to be pain for you. It symbolizes doom that is to come for you. Uh, another a marriage counselor uh, uses the four horsemen to describe uh, four elements in your relationship that could spell doom. You see them on the left side, criticism, content, 
defensiveness and stonewalling. And as he's describing these things, he says, these are the four things in your communication patterns and in your relationship that if these exist, it could spell doom for your relationship. So make sure that you don't do that. In fact, he provides the antidotes to the horsemen on the other side. But my favorite is uh, a few decades ago, there was a, a group of wrestlers that described themselves as the four horsemen. These guys, terrifying. Look at this. All right? And I love it because uh, you know if you see these guys in their matching sweatshirts, it's going to spell doom for you as an opponent of the four horsemen of whatever wrestling league this is. And I love the tagline on the top left, the men, the symbol, the look. Four horsemen. Uh, and it, it, it's just, it, I don't know, it's hilarious. But at the same time, you know that if you're wrestling against these guys, these beautiful smiles and this beautiful hair, in a way, is going to turn against you and is going to mean pain for you. But all this to say is that whenever we read about the four horsemen of the apocalypse, it, mean, it means that there is doom coming, that there is hard times coming, and specifically here in Revelation, that judgment is now going to fall upon humanity because of the sins they've committed across their history. All right? And so when we read scripture, what our goal is, is to read it in a plain, normative way, that we understand what the author is trying to communicate, regardless of he's being literal or figurative. And here, he's using figurative language, right? He's using horsemen to describe what is going to happen in this world. Not that there's going to be one guy on a red horse named War who's going to be patrolling this earth and you better not run into war at New Year's Eve party, but instead what's going to happen to this earth sequentially as these things begin to unfold. And so we're going to talk about these this morning. And we start with the very first horse and this rider represents conquest, right? It says he's riding a white horse, he has a crown and he has a bow, which is weird because most conquerors carry swords, and so we understand as we look at this figurative character that this likely represents the Antichrist who is coming to conquer and subdue other nations and set up his own reign. Now, it doesn't specifically say it's Antichrist, so that's our best guess. But what we do know is that there's going to be or global upheaval. There's going to be global conflict as some nations or nation try to conquer other nations. It's going to throw off this global, quote-unquote, peace that we have here and now. It won't look anything uh, like what is coming, though. And he has a sword, or he has a bow instead of a sword, because we think that represents, he's going to do it through primarily deceptive means, right? That he's going to come and in, in not through necessarily uh, battle, but through uh, political uh, means. He's going to take over nations and lead them uh, into his own rule and, and reign. Now, the second one represents war. This one is, it makes sense because when you got conquest, even if it's done mainly through deceptive means, war is going to follow that, right? As the nations start to realize something's going on, they're going to attack other nations, they're going to try to defend themselves, and we're going to see a global war. Now, this is not anything surprising to those of us that have read history, 
right? War as a concept is nothing new. It happens all the time. But here in Revelation, it's describing war that we've never seen before, that this will intensify over the course of the tribulation period and will be devastating for everybody. This whole world will be wrapped in war, that there's going to be global conflict and also lack of peace in communities with increased violence and unrest. These things are coming. The third rider represents famine. It's not as clear uh, as you read through Revelation 6. He's just described as a guy with some scales, and he starts talking about food economics. But what he is saying there in Revelation 6 is he's describing how much a quart of wheat costs or how much three-quart of barley costs is he's, he's describing the economics of the day. And what he's saying is that this food will be so expensive, you're going to struggle to eat, right? Because a denarius, the unit of currency he's describing is a day's wage. He's going to say, you're going to use a full day's wage to pay for a quart of wheat, which is enough to feed one person for a day. So you say, hey, you are working. You're going to use your entire salary on food for yourself. You're not going to have much left over for your family. In fact, you're not going to have anything left over to support yourself, to buy anything else, provisions, supplies, housing, gas, whatever it is. You're going to be spending all your money on food because this is the time of global famine. In the economics he's talking about here, he's describing a denarius for a quart of wheat, which was 12 times the going rate, which would represent an inflation rate of 1,200%. If you think 8% is bad in our day, imagine 1,200%, something much more devastating. Now, I remember when I was uh, like in my younger 20s, I was living up in Dallas, didn't have a ton of money, and so one thing that I would do quite often if I wanted to eat something and uh, is that I would go to Chipotle. Favorite restaurant at the time, just would go there like all the time. I, I think I, I recorded one time, I ate there five times in one week. It was just convenient and it was cheap and I liked it and it was kind of healthy. And I remember going and getting a chicken burrito bowl every time and I knew once I got to the register, it would be $7.60. And I memorized that number and for a good deal of time, I would compare everything I bought to how much Chipotle I could get for the same price. So I go to like a nice fancy restaurant, it'd be like $20, I'd be like, I could have bought three Chipotles for this price. And I'd be disappointed in myself for not being economical. Or I'd go on a trip, spend a few hundred dollars, it's like I could have eaten Chipotle for a month. I could have been living like a king at Chipotle. They know my name, I'm a regular, I'd be like, I'll have the usual, they know me. And I realized doing the math on this, it would turn, uh, during this time of famine, it would turn a $7.60 chicken burrito bowl into a $91.20 burrito bowl. Imagine going to Chipotle and they're being like, hey, we increased our prices just a little bit, supply chain, you guys get it, cheese, it's expensive. It'll be $91. And if you want guacamole, you know what, just give me your wallet. You know, this, you just might as well. It's gonna be expensive. And so that's what's happening here is that this writer is representing worldwide famine, which makes sense because in the context of conquest and war, crops are being destroyed, supply chain really is being disrupted, 
Food is not gonna be readily available, and that's gonna cause starvation, which leads us into rider number four, which represents death. Now we, once again, understand that all four of these horsemen kind of fit in together. Uh, They seem to be sequential, but death is accompanying all of this, conquest, war, and famine. And it says specifically that this rider is given authority to destroy one-fourth of the earth's population, which if it happened right now, would be about two billion people. Two billion people would be slain if it happened right now. Now compare that to the most horrifying and and destructive war we've experienced on this earth, right? World War II, where 56 million people died. 56 million compared to two billion. It's horrifying. And it's not even the end. This is still in the beginning of these judgments. But it's truly a post-apocalyptic kind of scene here. And I think in like popular imagination, when we think of like the end of the world, we usually think in terms of the movies we've seen that show us what the end of the world could be like. And it often involves like alien invasions or zombies of some kind or, or even killer robots where we need Arnold Schwarzenegger to come back and guide us through, right? We need a savior of some kind. But instead of it being something pretty insane, like one of those things, what we see in Revelation is it's nothing novel. It's nothing new. It's nothing surprising. Famine, war, all these things we've seen before. But now they're intensified in a way we've never seen. And two billion people will be killed. And so, as we read Revelation 6, we ask, why is this happening, right? At the beginning, we kind of Asked, you know, if, if God is good and loving and kind, why is he letting this happen? In fact, why is he maybe causing this to happen? Why is he letting judgment fall? And the reason why, as we read through scripture, we see one thing above all things is that God is holy, and his holiness demands a just response to sin. That in his holiness, the presence of sin cannot exist forever. And so in his holiness, his justice must deal with sin. It must be removed. It must be dealt with. And therefore, his justice must fall. Judgment must fall. And what Revelation shows us again and again is God is very serious about the problem of sin. Now, for many of us, uh, we have a tendency, and this is all of us, we have a tendency to underplay sin. We have a tendency to downplay it. In our lives, the things we do, we tend to not treat them with the seriousness that God himself shows us in Revelation. We tend to justify it, be like, yeah, I know, I, I kind of sinned, I kind of messed up yesterday, last night, but I, I won't do it again. I think I'm getting better, and I'm going to pray more. But when it comes to Revelation, what we, what we see is a God who is so serious that he puts this plan in place. And we see sin for the problem that it really is. In fact, as we look through scripture for all of human history, 
what we should realize is that God has been overwhelmingly gracious to postpone sin this long. Right? He could have judged it right from the beginning. Hey, you eat that fruit, Adam and Eve, boom, you're gone. But he has waited and waited and waited and postponed and been gracious and merciful because he's given us a way out of that sin and death, right? Through Jesus Christ, that those who believe in him are saved from their sin, but also from the judgment that is coming for sin in the future. And that's exactly what Romans 5, 9 is all about. It says, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. And for Paul writing Romans, this is something to be celebrated, right? We have been justified. We have been redeemed. We've been saved, not only in the present moment, but we understand this judgment that is coming and falling upon sin in the future. We are completely saved from that. And we have nothing to worry about. And here we see this tension that, that God loves us so much that he sent his only son, that he dies on a cross, that those who believe in him are free, are given eternal life, are forgiven, are redeemed, and on the path to restoration, that we have nothing to fear and as 1 Thessalonians, I won't have it on the screen for you, 1 Thessalonians 4 goes into details. Paul's writing to this church, and they're really confused about the future and the end times and what that's going to look like. He says, don't worry. In the last moment, Jesus is going to come in the clouds, and all believers alive and dead are going to be caught up with him for all of eternity. We'll be pulled from earth and be united with him to enjoy his goodness and grace forever and ever. We commonly call this the rapture, and thank goodness it happens before this tribulation. None of us will be present for this judgment because Jesus has saved us from it. I love this quote from Martin Lloyd-Jones, uh, kind of a famous preacher a few decades ago. He says this, what most people talk about as the love of God is nothing but their own philosophic conception of love. It is not God's love. God's love is a holy love, a righteous love, a just love, a love that always in Christ. No man will ever know the love of God except he believes and trusts himself to the Lord Jesus Christ. And his point is those that want to understand how a God of justice and righteousness can also be a God of love only need to look at Jesus Christ because God's love is demonstrated through him. You ever question, is God loving? Jesus. Jesus is the answer. Jesus is how he fully displays his loving character. But judgment remains on those that do not believe, and it must be dealt with. Judgment is going to come for sin at some point, and that is what's being described here in Revelation 6. We're going to move on to verse 9. It says this. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar, the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God, for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood 
on those who dwell on the earth. Then they were given, each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. And this section describes people that during this tribulation, remember we have, as believers have been raptured, we are not present, the church is not present, but people are coming to know God still. That the gospel is still working and active. People are believing as they see this judgment falling. They say, I need uh, God. I need salvation. I need a way out of this. And they believe in God and they are saved from that eternal judgment. But as they preach this message of love and peace, they are met with violence and they are killed. But what this shows us in the fact that people are coming to faith is that God's holiness demands a just response to sin, but his grace will remain. Right, that there's a window that God is providing where these judgments are going to happen, but they're going to be slow. Think plagues of Egypt where they happen sequentially, one at a time, and there's always a chance to respond to these judgments, and people will understand what's going on and place their faith in Jesus Christ and become believers, though they might be killed. But God in his mercy gives people time to respond. It kind of reminds me when I was uh, younger, way younger, uh, a child, uh, my parents, whenever they would discipline us, they had this like three foot long wooden paddle. In fact, it looked like pretty much just like a sword, like it had a handle. And uh, whenever we get in trouble, we knew that that paddle sword thing was coming for us. And in the mind of like an elementary school kid, this was not three feet. This was like eight feet long. This was like a Excalibur, right? The sword of justice. This was like William Wallace was using this thing to conquer the English. And every time we got in trouble, we were in fear of this paddle. And so often we try to hide it in our craftiness because sinners will find a way. But we would hide the source of judgment and uh, we eventually would get caught and double judged uh, for that reason. But um, I remember, you know, often my brother and I would did not get along. We were at each other's just like all the time and uh, often get in trouble for this. And my mom would be like, you guys better shape up or when your dad gets home you're going to get the paddle. And she would give us a window, right? And in this window, there's two roads. First road, shape up, repent, turn, save yourself from judgment. Road two, continue in disobedience, hit Sam more, be judged, but proud, you know? <laughs> Don't back down. So often, chose road number two, right? Even though there was a window, even though grace was extended, there was time to respond, still be like, I'm going to do things my way, Poof, right? But here in Revelation, what God is doing is providing that window, and even though some people will respond to his grace and belief, most will continue in dis disobedience. Most will continue on that path to judgment. And that's what we're seeing happen here in Revelation 6, that these people who are killed for the witness of the gospel are calling out to God to avenge their death because they were faithful 
and they're given a white robe and told to wait a little while longer while this window remains open for those who might believe. We see God's grace remains even in judgment. In Revelation 12, we pick it up again. It says, when he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth and the full moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. Calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who was seated on the throne and from the wrath of God for the great day of their wrath has come and who can stand. And what we see in this section, I highlighted it for you guys, but we see this concept of the great day of the wrath of God is now. It has come. And what this is, is a reference that occurs throughout scripture, both Old Testament and New, which is commonly referred to as the day of the Lord. And it's not talking about church. It's not talking about Sunday, it's talking about a day when God will unleash his wrath and his judgment on sin and deal with it finally. That day has come, and we see this referenced many times in the Old Testament. There's a few of them, mostly the prophets, right, as they describe that judgment is coming, but restoration will follow But we take a piece of this, and we see in Ezekiel 30, as he describes it, the day is near, the day of the Lord is near. It will be a day of clouds, a time of doom for the nations. And that's what we see being played out in Revelation, that that time of doom is happening. The four horsemen are here. There is conquest, war, famine, death. There's disease. There's horrible things happening. People are dying. There is a time of doom. God's wrath is falling upon this world. And this is one of those good news, bad news kind of situations. And the bad news is rather obvious that judgment is falling, that people are dying. But I love this verse from Ezekiel 33, which describes God's heart in it all. As he says, say to them, as I live, declares the Lord God, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked turn from his way and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways. That even in God's justice, his heart is for people to turn to him. That his grace remains available. And that's the good news. The good news is also that this is a time where God is establishing his justice on this world. That though Judgment involves destruction and dealing with sin, that this is a means to an end. And on the other side, when God's justice has been established on this earth, he will reign in peace and his glory will be displayed for all of eternity as he is doing something to finally redeem and restore not only our souls, but all of this world and this universe as he reckons 
reconciles all things to himself and restores all of creation. But in order to get to that glorious future in God where we are experiencing that grace and love forever and ever, God needs to deal with sin. Because once he does, there's gonna be no more pain, no more suffering, no more problems, no more anxiety, no more depression, no more murder or violence, nothing. We will exist perfectly in his love and be living in the fullness of what he intended for us for all of eternity. And though we read Revelation 6 and see toughness of what this involves, we understand the future is where we get our hope from. And so for us in this room, we're reading this, we already understand, hey, if we're raptured, why does this matter? Like, what is this applying to us? But as we read this chapter, what it should show us and what it should invoke in us is a seriousness to the problem of sin that still persists in our society, right? It should prick our hearts to the degree where we look at the people in our lives, our friends, family, workmates, classmates, people in our social circles that don't know Christ, and we see this coming judgment that will fall on all sin, and we are concerned for the souls of the people that we're around. That God has put us here for a purpose. He's called us into his own ministry. He's made all of us disciple makers and witnesses to his gospel. As we see through Acts, as the church forms, they are showing the world what the character of God is because they are showing the world the love of God proclaimed through the message of the gospel. And so as believers here and now, we need to orient our entire lives around the proclamation of this gospel that our resources, time, energy, whatever it is, goes into sharing this message with people because we love them enough to show them a God that's going to redeem them. And so my challenge to all of you guys is what are we doing about that? And this is the challenge for me as well, right? I'm not, I'm not free from this. In fact, evangelism still to me is, is a tough thing to figure out how to do it well, right? Because people come knock on my door, try to talk to me about stuff they believe. I'm not listening to that. But as a community of believers, the best way we display the gospel is when we love each other and we love other people that invites them to ask the question, what makes you different? Why are you so hopeful? Why are you so joyful? Why in the midst of all of this darkness do you seem like you got peace? And we respond, because we know the Lord and our future is secured in him, and that frees us up in the present moment to love you and to show you a God who also loves you. The band's gonna come up. We're gonna sing another song, and as we worship God, I want you guys just to reflect in your heart of, do, do I truly care that other people do not know God? Like, does that, does that prick my heart at all? Does that concern me in any way? And if not, would you ask God to show you and to teach you, to give you maybe even a heart that is passionate about sharing that message with your friends, family, whoever needs it? 
that we would be together the people of God, sharing the message of God through the power of God. Let's pray. Father God, we're thankful once again for your word. And as we come to Revelation, we, we read and we hear tough, tough things. And for many of us, it makes us wonder, how can a God who is just and righteous be loving in his judgment? And we understand, God, you are holy, and we do not fully comprehend your holiness. In fact, we do not fully comprehend much of who you are, but we trust you, we love you, we know you're making all things right, that you're reconciling all things to yourself and preparing for us a future in which we enjoy you forever and ever, away from the presence of sin and evil. And we cannot wait for that day. So God, give us hearts to love. Fill us with creativity and energy and strength to be your people and to love like you. In Jesus' name, amen.